Good to see you guys and welcome. Uh, my name is Matt, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, and just so glad that you're with us at FBC this morning. A lot of exciting stuff going on. We're so excited for VBS. I got my VBS shirt on. It's going to be great this week. Really, we can't wait just to share the good news of Jesus and love these kids and families in our city. So I hope that you'll be praying with us as this week progresses um, each day, that God would really get a hold of these kids' hearts. We know how impactful it can be when the gospel is shared, and especially when kids hear from an early age about the love of God. So we're excited. Be praying for us. And actually, as we turn now our attention to God's word, let's pray again one more time, just specifically for uh, the next 35 minutes or so. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this morning, for the joy of being here as a church family, of singing to you, praying and uh, looking into your word. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in our church and in our city, Lord, uh, as you're reaching people with the gospel. Uh, we pray now, Lord, for your help as we turn our attention to your word. Would you teach us? Would you open our eyes to see uh, the things you have for us? Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted, and by your spirit, would you comfort us where we need to be comforted? So we just come with humble hearts, open hands, ready to receive from you, Lord. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some have noticed a pattern in families with multiple children, and the pattern goes like this. Not always, but often, the oldest sibling, the firstborn, is a little bit more responsible, cares a little bit more about behaving and pleasing their parents, they pursue happiness and joy in life sometimes by conforming to the desires of their parents. Maybe they are more likely to settle down close to home, have a strong sense of doing what is right for the family. And the younger sibling or younger siblings, again, not always, but often pursue happiness and joy by kind of spreading their wings, leaving the nest, not caring as much about what parents think, but they're a little bit more interested in what their peers have to say and kind of want to discover themselves out in the world. Maybe you've seen this at work in your own family. Again, it's not a rule. It's not every time, but often. A friend of mine told me about this dynamic in his family. He said his oldest daughter could not lie to them. Like she would try, but she, her sense of guilt when she would lie, of displeasing her parents, she would just uh, not be able to keep it in. They knew every time she was lying. But his younger daughter could lie with a straight face, cool palms like it was nothing. They would say, have you brushed your teeth tonight? And she'd say, yep. And they'd say, your toothbrush is dry. Doesn't look like you brushed your teeth. Are you sure you brushed your teeth? And she'd say, yep, with no problem, could lie straight to their face, not an issue. So the older sibling, responsible Strong sense of guilt, want to please my parents. Younger sibling did not care, just wanted to do things her way. And so we see that play out in a number of families. The oldest, responsible, youngest, maybe not so much. And that's not just a dynamic at work in families. It actually illustrates two different ways of approaching God. Two different ways to relate to God. And that's what we're going to unpack this morning from Luke chapter 15. So I invite you to turn in a Bible with me to Luke 15 if you haven't already. Luke 15 verse 25 is where we're going to be starting. This is a week two of our summer series that we're 
calling parables, where we're going to be walking through parables of Jesus. Those are simply stories, stories that Jesus taught to change how we view God, to change how we view life and people and ourselves. So there are these stories with a deeper truth that they are pointing to. And actually this morning we're in week two of our study on the same parable, the parable known as the prodigal son. We looked at it kind of overview last week and this week we're going to dig in a little bit more to the heart of the older brother. If you don't know much about this story, it's, it's pretty simple. A son leaves home, says he wants nothing to do with his dad, so he takes his money, runs away to a far-off land, and he squanders all of his wealth in wild and reckless living, and he eventually hits rock bottom. He's hungry. He has no place to live. He's desperate. I mean, it's rock bottom. It's as if he, he moves to L.A., he starts rooting for the Dodgers. Or, it's just bad. Or, or he moves to Dallas and starts rooting for the Cowboys. Just really ugly stuff in his heart. It's just not good. Or you can you know, put in whatever sports metaphor works for you. Just bad. Just bad. Rock bottom. And he decides, I need to go home. I got to do something. I got to clean up my life. So I'm going to go home. And maybe my dad will be gracious to me. I don't know. Maybe he'll let me work as his servant. He won't reinstate me into the family, but I could work for him. At least I'll have some food. At least I'll have a place to stay. And so he goes home. And we see that the father is extravagantly gracious to his younger son. And he welcomes him home with open arms. And he immediately reinstates him into the family. And it's this powerful image of the truth that God welcomes sinners home, like you and me. He welcomes us home with open arms. He loves us, and he calls us to come home. But as we talked about last week, that's not the only point that the parable is making. It might not even be the main point that Jesus is trying to get across, because there's this other character in the story, this second brother, this older brother, the firstborn, and he's not like his younger brother. No, he didn't go off in reckless living and squander his parents or his dad's wealth and bring shame upon the family. No, he stayed home and he worked hard and he was responsible and he was obedient and he kept the rules. And so with this story, we often think, okay, there are two ways to relate to God. One is to run away and sin in really clear, outward, external, visible ways it's one option. The other option is to stay home, work hard, keep the rules, be obedient. And we often look at this older brother and say, well, he's morally upstanding. He probably went to church, probably read his Bible a lot, very virtuous. And so we think he's the example we should follow. He's the moral picture of perfection. He's what God wants for us. He's really doing it right. He's really spiritual. But Jesus actually shows us that that is not the case at all. And he challenges our usual assumptions about how to get right with God and who is right with God because in this parable, both brothers are lost. Both brothers are lost and have wandered away from their father. We just can't see it at first with the older brother. He stayed at home. And so his disobedience, his separation from the father is 
buried. It's buried beneath layers of obedience, morality, church attendance. See, he's wandered away even though he stayed at home. He's lost, even though on the outside things look good. And so really what this story is teaching us is there are two ways to be lost. One is to, again, run away, run away from God in the most visible, clear, immoral ways. It's one route. And the other route is to stay home, work hard, be religious, and be lost. Keep the rules. Go to church and be lost. And so today what we're going to do is spend some time looking at the older brother and digging in a little bit to what was going on in his heart and dissecting his heart. What were some of the attitudes, the thoughts, the the warning signs of an older brother heart that we need to be aware of so we don't slip into this same kind of mentality? And if you're here this morning and you're not a you're not a churchgoer, you're not a want to consider yourself a Christian, then this maybe is an easy day for you to come because we're just going to be talking to the insiders, to the church people about how we get it wrong. So it would be fun for you to listen in on. So, well done. So, with that, let's jump into verse 25 of the text. The younger sons come home. His father has welcomed him. The party is raging. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. And here's the warning signs. We see what he says in verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. The first warning sign we see in verse 29 is that the older brother views life with his father as service without celebration. Service without celebration. All these years I've been slaving for you. I've worked hard. I've been obedient. But it's joyless. It's obedience without joy. It's duty without delight. He, he doesn't seem convinced that he's really been living the good life, that his father is good, that there's joy in serving him. It seems like he's missing out on what other people are experiencing. He's being cheated by his father because he stayed home. There's a Dutch priest named Henry Nouwen, an author, leader in the faith, who has written a lot about, he actually wrote a whole book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And in it, he explains this dynamic in an older brother heart that he can relate to. He says this, older brothers often experience a certain envy toward their younger brothers and sisters who seem to be less concerned about pleasing and much freer in doing their own thing. For me, he says, this was certainly the case. And all my life I have harbored a strange curiosity for the disobedient life that I myself didn't dare to live, but which I saw being lived by many around me. 
I did all the proper things, mostly complying with the agenda set by the many parental figures in my life, teachers, spiritual directors, bishops, and popes. But at the same time, I often wondered why I didn't have the courage to run away as the younger son did. It's strange to say this, but deep in my heart, I have known the feeling of envy toward the wayward son. It's the emotion that arises when I see my friends having a good time doing all sorts of things that I condemn. I call their behavior reprehensible or even immoral, but at the same time, I often wondered why I didn't have the nerve to do some of it or all of it myself. The obedient and dutiful life of which I am proud or for which I am praised feels sometimes like a burden that was laid on my shoulders and continues to oppress me. This is the attitude of service without celebration. Obedience without joy, duty without delight. You see, now is expressing, you know, I was doing what I was supposed to do, what I knew I should do, what I ought to do, but there was this suspicion that maybe I'm being cheated. Maybe I'm really missing out on what life is all about because I'm not doing the things that other people are out there doing. Can anyone relate to that? I can. I know at times I've looked at my own life and I've been envious of those who seem to be more carefree. And I've thought to myself, you know what? Maybe I would be more fulfilled in life if I had explored the party scene a bit more in college. Maybe I'd be a bit more fulfilled, honestly, if I slept around a little bit before I settled down and did things God's way. Maybe I'd be more fulfilled if before I went into ministry, I made a bunch of money, got a bunch of toys, had a lot of fun. Maybe my heart would be more fulfilled if I did or had what those other people seem to have. I'm not always convinced I'm living the good life. When we're in this place of service without celebration, we probably have a dry prayer life. We probably lack intimacy with God, this leads to being a grumpy Christian sometimes, kind of having the spiritual gift of discouragement, where we're, we're suspicious of Christians who laugh, you know, like really good belly laughs, like snorting milk out your nose laughs. We're suspicious of people like that. We're suspicious of people like Steve Fretwell, who make jokes and a little too jolly. Their beards are a little too bushy. We're not so sure what to do with people like that. Because they don't seem as exhausted or as grim or as serious as we do. They don't seem as spiritual as we are. They must not be taking this whole Jesus thing seriously enough. But Jesus shows us there's something deeply flawed with seeing life with our Father as just all service slaving without celebration without joy. And so a diagnostic question for each of us this morning is when we look into our hearts, do we really believe, do we really believe that life with Jesus is the good life? Do we really believe that God is good and his ways are fulfilling and best for us? Do we truly believe that? Or when we think about our Christian life, do we use words like the older brother, 
slaving, exhausted, work? Or do we use words like joy, peace, life, celebration? Do we celebrate the word of God and what he calls us to, how he calls us to live? Or do we kind of grumble about it and drag our feet as we obey? Now, to clarify, the Christian life certainly has challenges. And suffering certainly comes. And happiness on the surface is not always evident. I'm not saying every season is going to be marked by kind of a happy-go-lucky, jovial spirit. Hard times come, but... Can we look at our lives and see that there is this undercurrent of joy in the Lord that's evident? Do we see in our hearts a deep conviction, no matter how challenging things might be, that that walking with the Lord is good, is best for us? So the first warning sign of an older brother heart is seeing the Christian life, life with the Father, as service without celebration. And the second is this, you feel entitled. We feel like God owes us more than we've received. Again, look at verse 29. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. So not only has my life with you been hard work, it's just been slaving. I don't have any reward to show for it. You've never given me even a young goat to celebrate with my friends, and yet this son of yours, my younger brother, comes home, and you kill the fattened calf for him. You throw this massive party for our entire community. So the, the older brother is suffering from a condition that medical professionals call, where's my goat? Syndrome. It's true. Where's my goat syndrome? Our family goes to church, okay? We even tithe. I serve. I give generously my time for other people. I lead in the church. I lead a small group. I teach a Bible study. I pray. I invite my neighbors to church. I talk to other people at Jesus, about Jesus, excuse me, even in uncomfortable situations. Where's my goat? God, look what I do for you. Where's my protection? Where's my promotion? Where's my recognition? Why aren't people applauding me and noticing all that I do? Why aren't you blessing me with uh, better health or better finances or a more comfortable life, more toys? Where's my goat? We feel like God's not holding up his end of the bargain. We've put in the work and we're not receiving the reward. We say, okay, there's a really simple formula. God, here, Father, here's how this is supposed to work. I do good, I obey, and you bless me. Put in good, get out good. That's how it works, right? Or my younger brother, he hasn't done good. He hasn't obeyed. So he shouldn't get good things and blessings. And yet, you're giving him this party. You're giving him this celebration. God, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. And so in that, think about that. What's going on in the older brother's heart? He's not obeying because he loves the Lord. He's not obeying and jumping through the hoops because he truly loves his father. 
He's obeying, he's following the rules to control his father. He's following the rules so that God will be in his debt. God, if I do these things, then you owe me. You owe me blessings. You owe me good things. And so he's not serving him. He's not staying at home. He's not being obedient because he loves his father. It's so he can control outcomes. Back in 2010, there was this wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills named Stevie Johnson who illustrated this heart perfectly. His team lost a game in overtime after Johnson himself dropped a game-winning pass in the end zone. And he took to Twitter afterwards to rant at God. And he said this on Twitter. He said, I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me. You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this. Ever. The volume had to go up there because there's lots of exclamation points. If you see him. He was... A lot of exclamation points going on here. Do you see the heart of the older brother in this tweet? I praise you, God. I honor you 24-7. Where's my goat? Where's my victory? All you've given me is shame and embarrassment and failure. You're not holding up your end of the bargain. God, where's my goat? And... I hesitate to use this example of our dear friend, Stevie Johnson, because if you're an experienced older brother, like me, like if you've been doing the older brother thing for a while, then you would not be so quick to let something like this slip out. You know, like you're way too coy, too sly to let that happen. You would keep it hidden, under wraps. You want to go and tweet about it, but in your heart, you would feel it. And so I hesitate because it's easy for us to look at that extreme example and say, what a crazy thing to say. And yet, in our hearts, we've thought the same things. I praise you, Lord. And yet, where's the reward for it? It's more subtle for us. We have this kind of undercurrent of resentment, of bitterness, anger in our hearts. Sometimes when we see other people flourishing. It can be hard for older brothers to celebrate the good things in other people's lives. It can be hard, honestly, on social media when we look around and see all the fun things people are doing, possessions they have, experiences, opportunities that they're having. And rather than having genuine joy for them, there's bitterness. There's, well, what about me? Where's my goat? This reaction is sad because it shows that we really want God's blessings more than we want God, right? We want the gifts, not as concerned with the giver. And in an even deeper way, it shows that we don't think we really need Jesus as a savior. Maybe Jesus is a good moral example for us to follow, an inspiring picture of self-sacrifice and how to live, but he's not so much a savior because... God owes us, right? We've done good, and so God needs to bless us. God's in our debt, so we're our own Savior. We've played the game well enough. We don't need a Savior. The third and last warning sign, we've looked at two so far. The third is a a disdain for younger brothers. 
Look at verse 29 again. He answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a goat, excuse me, a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Do you hear the bitterness in his heart? Verse 30, this son of yours? Notice he doesn't say, my brother, my brother, my love. Now this son of yours comes home. He distances himself from his younger brother, points out his shame. Hey, Father, remember what he's done. Remember how bad he's been. Remember he squandered your wealth and brought shame upon our family with prostitutes. You remember that? He wants to highlight his sin so that he can have the moral high ground. See, comparison is the name of the game for the older brother. He has to be better than his younger brother. He's clear that his theology is right, his behavior is right, his act is cleaned up. He would never do these sinful things that this younger brother has done. And so he has little patience for his younger brother. He has disdain for his younger brother. And so older brothers in the church often can lack empathy. We can be rather judgmental and cold. We can feel superior. It's pretty easy for us to look down on other people because we got to figure it out. So why can't everyone else just figure it out too? We're slow to extend compassion, slow to extend patience, slow to extend grace, because frankly, we don't see ourselves, honestly, in the same boat as those sinners over there. And so loving people for us, loving messy people for us, it's great in theory. Oh, we'll talk about it. We'll study it in our Bible studies. But when it comes to actually living it out, when the, the messy people are in our church, in our row, in our small group, then it gets a lot harder to live out. And so again, this is one of the common criticisms that Christians receive today from non-Christians. That Christians are a bit condescending, a bit smug, a bit cold, a bit insensitive, dismissive, judgmental, especially online. I don't know if you've seen it. I've, I've seen a lot of scary stuff online from Christians heralding the name of Jesus while insulting, dismissing, condescending towards these non-Christians, calling people fools, calling people names, brushing people off, especially those who view politics differently than we do, those who view issues of sexuality different than we do. And there's a way to present a biblical position on current social issues while doing it with grace, while doing it with humility. And so again, sometimes we're like an older brother, just kind of blasting people, and then we say, I wonder why they don't want to hear more about Jesus from me. So, older brothers, they're about service but not celebration. They feel entitled, and they have a disdain for younger brothers. Tim Keller summarizes it well this way. He says, elder brothers have an undercurrent of anger toward life circumstances, 
hold grudges long and bitterly, look down at people of other races, religions, and lifestyles, experience life as a joyless, crushing drudgery, have little intimacy and joy in their prayer lives, and have a deep insecurity that makes them overly sensitive to criticism and rejection, yet fierce and merciless in condemning others. It's pretty ugly. And I know I can relate to the heart of an older brother, so I'm not preaching this at you. This is for me as well. It's not pretty to look at, but it's important that we see what Jesus is pointing out here. If we want to change, if we want to not be older brothers, then we have to see and have an awareness of the reality of our hearts before the Lord and then see what Jesus has for us. Because if you've resonated with anything so far, any element of being an older brother, then hopefully you're wondering, okay, what's the solution? How do we fix this? I don't want to be like that. How do we change? Is there hope for an older brother like me? And the good news is that there is hope. There is hope for older brothers and younger brothers alike. And we see it in verse 31 in the father's words. It says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so we see hope for the older brother in the grace and love of his father. Notice how he responds. The father gently pleads with his older son. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, look, you punk. Let me tell you a thing or two. You better learn your place. No, with, with humility, with gentleness. The father approaches his son, rather than, again, beating him, sending him away, doing any number of things culturally he could have done, he pleads with him. He says, my son, my son, my child, everything I have is yours. You're always with me. And he brings it back to the heart of the gospel, which is a relationship with God. We see the love of the father for his sons and his daughters. You are always with me. My life is yours. What, what have I withheld from you? John Piper, pastor and author, said this, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. Again, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. So the gospel is not some impersonal ticket to a cloudy, ethereal, eternal existence. It's a, a personal invitation into a relationship with the God who knows you, who created you, and who loves you. It reminds us, again, that God's love for us is not based on our performance, right? We talked about this last week. God's love for us, younger brothers, older brothers, it's not based on performance. And that's what both brothers assume. Younger brother, I haven't kept the rules. I haven't performed 
The father's not going to love me. He's not going to welcome me. Older brother, I have performed. I have kept all the rules. God owes me more than I'm getting. He owes me his favor. They both think it's about performance. And Jesus is trying to show that they both have it wrong. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only answer for the heart of an older brother. It's the only hope for any older brothers out there like me. Why? Because it tells us of our sin and our need. It humbles us out of our pride that Jesus had to die for us. Jesus had to go to the cross for your sin and for my sin. And he died in our place. We needed a savior. And through the finished work of Christ, by grace, through faith, not by works, we are redeemed and reconciled to God. So the gospel shows us both our need and how cherished and loved we are by God. The good news of God's love for us. And so rather than service without celebration, the gospel shows us great joy we can experience knowing God, walking in the purposes that he has lined out for us with, with a true heart of conviction that we're not missing out, that life with God truly is the good life. Rather than feeling entitled, we can, again, in humility approach the Lord, realizing that we deserve nothing. We don't deserve salvation. God doesn't owe us, and yet God in his grace has given us everything in Christ. And rather than looking at younger brothers with disdain, we can look at younger brothers with humility, knowing that we're in the same boat, sinners in need of a Savior. And we can marvel that Christ has saved us, people like us. So we're going to explore the gospel more next week and the grace of God in Christ, how Jesus has saved us. But if you're, well, you, I was going to say, if you're here today, you are here today. So I want you to know that God loves you. That God loves you. That God is for you. That God invites you into a relationship with him. And he's not inviting you to just adopt some foreign strain of morality and rule keeping, a burden to put on your back. He's inviting you to know him and experience the freedom that comes in Christ, having his presence in your life. And that's, that's the message we want to send with our VBS, right? When our kids, the 80 kids or so that are going to be in our building all week, we don't just want them to hear moralism and just act right and God will love you and behave. And here's a big rule book for life, so make sure not to break any of these. I want to say, you are going to break some of these. Probably a lot of them. And God loves you. God's gracious and kind to you. And he's forgiven you in Christ. If you put your faith in him, you can walk with him both now and forever. We want our kids to see Jesus, not just law. See, this is so huge because, our, our, again, our default mode is law and performance. That's what we're used to. Amber and I, my wife, were talking about this last night. We're like, we've been... You know, we have decades of church experience combined. Decades of church experience. And still, this concept is hard to drive into our hearts because we're so naturally bent towards performance and obedience equals love and favor. But the gospel says something different, that God's love is not based on performance, but it's so hard. So we have to drive into our hearts. I heard a pastor one time, I read, read about it this week, who 
was calling his congregation to action. And he said this to another pastor. He said, you know what? What my congregation needs is a swift kick in the tail to get moving. They need a swift kick in the tail to go share their faith. And we could sub out share their faith with any Christian act, right? My congregation needs a swift kick in the tail to go and be more generous or to start giving or to start serving or to attend a Bible study or whatever. What they need is a kick in the behind to get moving. So some more loss, some more pressure. We want to push them. They need to learn to act right. And so we're going to motivate them by kind of spurring them that way. That sounds a lot like the older brother. Right? What younger brothers need is to learn how to act right. A swift kick in the tail. Get right. Get to work. Here's a shovel. Here we go. Come on. Get with it. But what Jesus shows us is something else. What we need most is not a swift kick in the tail to get moving. What we need most is a clear picture of Jesus. We need to see the love of God for us in Christ. When we see the love of God, how you are loved by God in Christ. It transforms us, it softens our hearts, changes us from within, humbles us out of our pride, fills us with confidence and joy that we're loved by God and a part of his family. It's the gospel that reminds brothers and sisters that we are beloved sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for your word. Jesus, thank you for this story that you that you taught to show us what, what you are like. You are gracious and kind, and you've showed us what you want most from us, and that is not necessarily performance and jumping through religious hoops, Lord, but it's a relationship with you. It's our hearts, Lord. You want us to come home, whether we're younger brothers or older brothers. You want us to love you, and we know, Lord, that Obedience is important. You do call us to lives of holiness, but we know that that comes after the gospel. When we embrace you, Jesus, you change us, transform us, and then you call us to live new lives in your name. So Lord, help us, wherever we are, to move towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.